And so we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5 today, and we're going to be in verses 1 to 14. And so I'm just going to begin by reading those here for us. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for who you are, O Lord. Bless us now, guide us now, O Lord. May we only and ever speak what is true about your word and about you. Help me today, Lord. Give me the strength that's necessary for a task that is beyond me, and give us each strength by the power of your spirit to understand and to love you and to walk in your ways. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We've come actually quite a bit of ways in the letter of Paul to the Ephesians, and I kind of just want to do a short summary that gets us up to our chapter, and so this is just going to be a little bit of recap. And we've been told some really, really wonderful things that we want to think about again. We've been told that we are blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. We've been told that we're forgiven and adopted by Jesus Christ and purchased with his blood. We're also told that this wasn't some haphazard thing, that before the world began, God predestined us together as his people for such a glory as this. We're told that we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, this promise that God really is strong enough to complete everything that he's started in us. Things even got a little bit of universal and cosmic when we learned that this project of God in bringing Jew and Gentile together in Jesus Christ is something that the angels are looking at. This drama of human redemption that's centered in Jesus Christ is something that even the good angelic powers, those unseen powers, and the rebellious unseen powers are both looking on and just on the edge of their seat. How is this going to end up? How is this going to turn out? And we're promised that God will be victorious. Paul prayed for us to know the height and the width and the depth of the love of Christ, right? And then he urged us to hang on to that unity that Jesus gave his life for, that unity among us. Keep and hold on to that unity in the spirit and the bond of peace so that we will continue to love each other and be unified as a people. And then we learned that though we all once walked in a certain way, we have started in this last half of Ephesians to learn that we can't walk that way anymore. And so we have some negatives, some don't do this. And then last chapter we learned that there were some things that we should do. We shouldn't speak like this. Instead, we should speak like this. We shouldn't walk like this. Instead, 
we should walk like this. And this is kind of how what's led up to all of this. It's what's led up to this passage that we have before us today. And it starts off with something just incredibly striking if we would just sit and think about it. Be, therefore, be imitators of God. Imitate God. There is probably fewer places in the whole Bible that are more striking, more almost incredible than this. This is the only place in the Bible that this is said in this way. Imitate God. And, and we, should, we shouldn't rush past that. We should think about that, to imitate, to mimic, to copy, to replicate, to emulate, to reflect. I mean, think about all these things. Not just anyone, but God. We learned in chapter 4, Paul already said that we are created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and in holiness. And so it's only natural now that he says, well, if, if that's true of us, if we're created in this likeness, then we should look like it. We should speak like him. We should walk as he does. But this is, this is incredible. And, and we have to notice it's a command. Be imitators of God. Imitate God. It's a command. Paul is commanding us to do so. And this is not new. In the Torah, right, the Lord said, I am holy, therefore be holy. And we even read today in that scripture in Deuteronomy, I, the Lord, love the sojourner. I love the exile. I free the slave. I do these things. Therefore, you love the foreigner. You love those who are in exile. You love those who are in suffering. So God, very early on, was was leading Israel as a father and teaching them as children, be like me, do as I do, walk as I walk before you. But God, I mean, it, it's really, it's really quite incredible, and it's an amazing adventure. And we we have to learn this. There is no greater adventure than the Christian adventure to imitate God. I mean, just think about it. We ask each other all the time when we introduce each other, "Hey, what do you do for work?" You know, says, so, oh, well, you know, I work at this, this firm, or I do this, or I do that, or, you know, I, I lead these uh, outdoor hikes, or I do, or do whatever, you know. Just try this out one time as a Christian, and when you're in that conversation, maybe with a friend you want to share the gospel, with, like, hey, what do you do for work? Like, I imitate Almighty God. That's what I'm trying to be about. That's what I do for work. So you're going to get two responses, one of two responses. Either it's going to be like, woo, wow, that's cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, and they'll never talk to you again. Or they'll be like, that's just insane. Like, tell what that. Okay, that's so strange. I, I have to hear what. What do you mean? Like, I am in the business of imitating the Creator of the universe, and what a wonderful way to begin. Saying, how do you do that? And like, well, let, let me let me talk to you about that. Right. So it's a, it's a wonderful adventure. We should never be ashamed of that. But but we think about that. We think God, right? God, the Almighty, the Creator, the one who's righteous, the one who's holy, the one who's always good. He's always benevolent. He's always kind. He's always just. And then as we start to multiply all these things that God is, that Scripture tells us that God is, it just seems like the distance gets so far that we just, we crumble and we think, how do we even begin? And our text tells us we begin as beloved children. That's where we start, as children, as beloved children. You think of a child who's scared, his father tells him, come with me and do this. I know it's scary, but you can do it. I'll show you how. And the child's like, no, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. And what do parents do? Good parents do. They, they just love their child. No, but you're loved. But you're loved. You're, you're okay. You can do this. Follow me. Do what I do. You're loved. And so if this is not a burden that's too heavy to bear because we're told the way in which we actually begin to take on this task as beloved children, children who have already been loved 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we can do it. All of these words that we've even seen so far in Ephesians, Father, children, unity, love, these are all family terms. This is, this is the metaphor. This is the picture. And it's not just a metaphor, just a picture, or just a likeness. This is the, the reality. It's a real metaphor. It's a real picture, and it's what's true of us. And we're a family, and so we should walk and begin to imitate God in that way. And I can still see someone objecting, but really, <laughs> really imitate God, imitate the creator. That's, he's too high above me. Paul, really? Let's get real. Let's get honest. Let's stop joking around, right? Okay, Christians, that's cute, but let's, let's, let's talk about real things, right? But, but notice where Paul pushes us. He doesn't push us into these unknown depths of unreachable places and, and all the way into eternity. Where does he ultimately point us to? The Lord Jesus Christ. So how do we, how do we begin? We begin as beloved children by looking at the one who was the most beloved child. This is my son, my beloved. In him, I am well pleased. And from that moment on, the entire cosmos was looking at that going, that's what God looks like. That is a reflection of God. That is a copy of God. That is an image of God. And in fact, Jesus Christ is called all of those things in scripture. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the exact representation of his nature. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. These are not my words. These are my Father's words. These are not my deeds. These are my Father's deeds. Nothing of God the Father is missing in the Lord Jesus Christ and in his image. And that is the most powerful thing that we can probably ever think about, that to imitate God for Paul is to imitate Christ, right? He says, walk in love, right? Walk in love. In what way? Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So for Paul to imitate God is to imitate Christ. And as Christians, we should, this shouldn't be something too far beyond us because to imitate God is to imitate Christ because Christ is God. It's, uh, the math isn't too hard on this one. To look at Christ is to, to see the Father. To hear him is to hear the Father. To walk with him is to walk with the Father and the Spirit and the unity of the one holy God who's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And think about how wonderfully profound and simple the way of Jesus Christ is. So we're pointed to Jesus. We're pointed to his self-giving sacrifice that was in our place, on our behalf, right? And we're supposed to model that. And I want you to think of just how profound this is because in contrast to this, the world is filled with promises of becoming godlike. It's filled with them. They're everywhere. You, you can't go anywhere without being promised how you can become godlike. How can you become better? How can you become stronger, more knowledgeable, more holy, more righteous, more great, more influential, more powerful, right? And how do they always tell you about these things? 101 spiritual practices to earn, to get you the favor of God, right? To ensure God's favor. Do this, do that. Climb this endless ladder. ladder. Imitate me and you'll be rich. Imitate me and you'll be beautiful. Imitate me and you'll be great right? There's a hundred million things that set themselves up as the, the pinnacle of what it is to imitate and then become. And they all let us down. And in fact, a hundred and one, I mean, those books are just, just take those books and toss them over the cliff. A hundred, you know, you see these books like, oh, just 103,000 simple steps to become like God. Well, that's just great. I'm going to buy this book off the shelf. It's like, really, are we really thinking when we get, when we purchase that stuff? A hundred and thousand and one simple ways to, no, walk in love. That's the Christian story. Isn't that wonderful? Like, I've never been so proud to be a Christian my whole life. Walk in love. 
I was, I was talking to Sarah the other night, and I said, you know, I hear all this madness in the world. Do this, do that, do this, and there's all these hundred million things, and you can become like this, and you can read your friends' minds, and you can do that. And I, was, I tell Sarah, I've never been so happy to be a Christian. Never. Walk in love. Follow the Lord Jesus. Do what he did. Take care of your neighbor. Show him compassion. Walk in righteousness and holiness and peace with all. Like, I've never been so happy to be a Christian. And it's all Jesus, his self-giving sacrifice on the cross. We see God there dying for our sins. Do that, Christians, right? We're not innovators. We're imitators. We're not being asked to start something out. This is, this is a road that's been paved. So this is doable with all that we've been given. We're predestined. We have the spirit. We have God's strength. We have his power. We have Paul praying for us. We have the whole church praying for us. We have the angels looking in on us, ready for the glorification that God has planned for us. We can imitate God. We have everything we need to actually do it, right? We follow a pattern that's already been laid out for us. We see children all the time, right? And what, what they, they like to copy everything they see. They they look at this, sometimes for better or for worse, right? They look up to their parents, they do what they do. If it's good, the kids do good. If it's bad, a lot of times kids do bad, right? It shows us the responsibility that we have when people look up to us. But what do children often say? Stop copying. Stop copying. You know, when somebody says what you said, you know, I'm, I'm going to go to the store today. I'm going to go to the store today. Stop copying me. You know, like kids have the sense, of like, stop it. But you know, God says it's interesting. Start copying me. That's what this text says. Start copying me. Please, copy me. Do what I do. Say what I say. Be like me. That's wonderful. So in verse 3, we get a little bit of a shift here, right? We've heard a lot about where we need to look and what we need to do and how the simplicity of it all. Walk in love. But then Paul begins some negatives here. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covenants must not even be named among you as is proper among sense. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are all out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So Paul actually begins with a bunch of prohibitions. This is not popular in our culture, on our bodies. On our bodies, Paul the apostle begins a string of stuff. This is what you can and cannot do with your body. That is anti the religion of our culture right now. That is so uncomfortable for our, for our time to hear. You cannot do what you want with your own body. You belong to Jesus Christ. You are the temple of God. The spirit of God dwells in you. You have been purchased by another. You do not belong to yourself. You have been saved from slavery to become a servant to the Lord your God. There is no space in the Christian world in which we are fully autonomous over our bodies. And Paul makes that clear here. No sexual immorality. Let not even be named among you. The Greek here is pornia. Right? And we know that's where we get our word porn from. No sexual immorality, right? Any illicit behavior outside the sacred covenant of marriage between a man and his wife. None of that, right? All impurity, right? Anything morally unclean or dirty. All, all impurity, right? Because we, we know, but Paul, really, but can, I, can I hang on to this? All, all impurity, all of it. Let it not even be named among you. Covetous, greediness. Right, desiring to have more than his ones do. Right, and Paul connects this to sexual immorality. Interestingly, what we just read in chapter four, right, in verse uh, chapter four, verse nineteen, when he says they have become callous. Speaking of the Gentiles, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. 
right? So that greediness, that going beyond where God has allowed you to go is characteristic of the Gentiles in their lusting and seeking after sexually immoral things and experiences and pleasures, right? Not a lot has changed from the garden. You can have all these trees. You can have all this fruit, except this one and not that fruit. And then in our rebellion, what do we do? We want that one. We want the one God said, no, you can't have it. You can have this wonderful thing over here, but you can't have this, just this one thing. You have the whole garden, not this tree. No, we want that tree. We say, God, I'll take it. I'm autonomous. My body, my choice, right? I can do what I want. It's my fruit. I'll taste it whenever I like. And that's rebellion, right? And it's common in our culture. Given And, and this language, given themselves up to sensuality that we read in, in 4 verse 19. Given themselves, that's the same verb that's used of Jesus Christ at the beginning of our passage. He gave himself up for us. He hand, Literally, he handed himself over for us. This is the same word here. They handed themselves over to what? To sensuality. Now you see the difference. Jesus Christ was handing himself over for our sins while we are busy and we're busy handing ourselves over to sexual immorality and sin and greed and covetousness while Jesus is dying on the cross for our sins. That's the picture. That thing is happening as we watch this film that Paul is playing before us. He's handing himself over for us to redeem us, to rescue us as a sacrifice, pleasing, acceptable before God. And what are we doing? What are we busy with? Handing ourselves over, sacrificing ourselves to these things we worship in our culture. Nudity and pornography and sexual immorality and adultery. Hiding in secret places where no one can see us. And it's shameful. And we should admit it as Christians. What, to whatever degree that we ourselves are guilty, we, we should not go beyond that and then seek to hide and cover up. And, and no, these things ought to be exposed. And we'll get more into that. Must not even be named among you, right? So this picture is, is still family imagery here. Don't name this part of the family. Don't give it a name. Because once you get it a name, you end up keeping. It becomes part of the family. It becomes adopted, right? And it's part of the usual way of life. Paul's saying, don't do that. Do not give it a name. Because as soon as you do, you got to keep it. I had this really interesting thing that happened. I was on a, uh, a work trip with a friend from Knox who works there as well. We went up to Orlando and we were sitting to dinner. And we were talking about, hey, what's kind of going on with you? What's going on with you? We were setting up our, the Knox booth for a conference there in Orlando. And so I said, hey, man, what's new with you? She said, you won't believe this, man. Uh, my wife and the kids, while I'm away, they've been watching this dog that's kind of intermediate, doesn't really have a place to go right now. They've been watching this dog, and she's been sending me all these pictures of how cute it is. <laughs> and I said, oh, no, man. She's like, yeah, I really don't want this dog. You know, we, we already got so much going on, and we're going to have to feed it, and we're going to have to take care of it, and it's, gonna, it's just going to be a nightmare, right? And it, it, they're sending me all these pictures of smiling with it and how cute it is. He's even showing me. He's like, look, man, it's so cute. And I'm like, dude, that is cute. Since I've been married to Sarah, like, my use of the word cute has gone up, like, exponentially. And, and now I'm so lost, you know, 11 years into marriage, and I, I, I use the word cute all the time. It's, it's um, I'm hopeless. I'm lost. But, um, but anyway, so I'm like, yeah, that is cute. That dog is really cute. And, and I said, and I said, wait a second, they really like that dog. You're in danger of keeping that dog, man. And I told him as a friend, I said, you, you, you might, if you don't put a stop to this, that dog's going to become your dog. He's like, no, 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 I don't want the dog. And then he said, they named it. And I said, no, dude, that's your dog. Like, 
They named it. They think it's cute. They're sending you pictures while you're while you're away. This is a setup, dude. Like your wife is setting you up. Like they know you don't want the dog, so they are watching the dog while you're on a business trip, and they name the dog while you're gone. That's your dog, man. <laughs> He's like, no, no, we're gonna. Yeah. That, that's his dog now. <laughs> they, they fully adopted it. It's their dog. It belongs to them. It's part of the family, right? And, and, and that's a funny illustration, but, uh, but seriously and soberly, as soon as we say, you know what? I'm comfortable with this. This is okay. I can add this into the Christian life. It becomes part of the family, and we find ourselves being destroyed by this thing that we let in and named, and now we can't get rid of it, right? And someone would say, isn't this all extreme? Derek, really? Derek? I mean, you're a sinner, and we're a sinner, and we're all just sinners, and, and the, the world's pretty hard. It's hard to be human, and God's loving anyway. Isn't this all a little bit extreme? And you know, as Christians, we really need to hang on to the rational truth that, no, the, the, the things that are being done in secret, the sexual immorality, the pornography, all, that's extreme. That's extreme. Christianity is sanity. It is. It's thinking clearly. These things destroy people. They destroy their lives. They destroy marriages. They destroy children. They destroy everything that's dear to us as, as a human race. Even at just that base level, they destroy it. So the Christian story is, is sanity. We're in our right minds. And it's the world that's gone mad. They're crazy. And I love them with all of the love of Christ. And I, I want for all of my power to be able to treat everyone. I don't care what you are, who you are, what you've done. I'm going to treat you exactly the same as I'm going to treat any Christian in this room. However, our message, what we believe, should never be ashamed to say, no, this is not insane. This is not extreme. The world is extreme. This other idea that you can saturate your life with free sexual immorality and that you can get something out on the other end that's it's wonderful and good and worth having and builds up families. It will never happen. And then Paul gives us a prohibition for our mouths, right? He mentions foolish talk and filthiness and crude joking, right? Foolish talk. Uh, Larry pointed this out to me. I'm glad I, I get to read Greek with this guy because he points out these cool things. Foolish talk is from the word morologia, which means like moro, moron, <laughs> talk, words, logos, word, right? So it's literally stupid words. Paul says no stupid words. <laughs> No more on talk, right, is what Paul's telling us here. And he, and he kind of lumps them all together. Filthiness, foolish talk, or crude joking. He puts a lot of these things in threes. Huh? Threes are cool in Scripture, right? Filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. And he says all of these things are out of place, right? And with, with crude joking, that's, that's kind of a hard word to, what is Paul getting at here? And, and actually it comes from a word that, it's like witty speech, right? But the idea is these settings in which you're witty in ways that are transgressing moral boundaries, right? To get the attention of other people. Like, say at a party. Like, you're like, ah, oh, you know, I probably shouldn't say this, but oh, it's just a little risque. It's just a little risque, you know? And, and people kind of like that stuff, right? So I'm just going to kind of say this little risque joke, and I'll get a good laugh and <laughs> have a good time. That's kind of the milieu of this word, crude joking, right? And all of these are lumped together. Paul says they're out of place. They're out of place. They're not fitting. They don't belong. Right? And we all have had those experiences where we see someone else or even ourselves. We try to end up in the right place or at the right venue. And, and it's totally, we, we went the wrong way. We actually walked into the wrong room with like 300 people like in a conference and we're not supposed to be there. It's out, you're out of place. And what does it feel like? You're like, oh man, I'll just shoulder up to you in this random place I just found. I didn't waste all my time here and spend the next three hours. No, you, like, you get out of there. Because it's, it's incredibly awkward. Right? And that's the picture Paul wants us to get. These things are not cool 
in the family of God, right? They're not cool. They're not hip. They're not funny. They don't belong. They're awkward, right? They're uninvited. They're not part of the kingdom that's arrived and the kingdom that's coming. So just, they're just not what you think they are. They're not what our culture tells us they are. Hip and funny and cool. Apostles, no. They're not cool. They're not cool. They're out of place. So we need to think through all of these things and and take that seriously. And Paul gives us the reason for taking that seriously. For you may be sure of this, right? In verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolatry, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Before we jump into this warning here, and that's exactly what it is, Paul gives us the remedy for all of these evils, right? When he says what we ought to put in place of all of these deeds and words. And what does he say? But rather, thanksgiving, right? And, and let me just, let me suggest this to you. And, I, and I, a lot of these things I'm speaking to myself here, I include myself with you, really, as I listen to myself. Let's busy ourselves with being thankful. Let's busy our hearts with being thankful so that we won't have time and energy and effort enough to go and trespass beyond any of these boundaries that we know destroy us anyway, right? That know that bring us pain and heartache and sorrow and destruction, right? Thanksgiving, but rather Thanksgiving. This also shows us that we can't just take things out. We gotta put something good in its place, right? Because the command is to be imitators of God, not just to not be imitators of the world. It's to actually positively walk after the ways of our Father in heaven. And so this warning None of these people, no one who's sexually immoral and pure, covetous, calls them an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. We should not turn quickly away from this, even as Christians. Paul knows he's speaking to a Christian church, predominantly Gentile church. He knows that. He's not just out on the public street saying, hey, all you baddies out here, all, all you guys are messed up. Here's a big warning. This is a letter to the church in Ephesus, and this is a letter to our church here in Florida Coast. We shouldn't so quickly uh, massage this or turn away from it or, or, or move past it really quickly and get to, those, get to those gray scriptures, right? Because the point of it is, is what Paul is saying is, church, it's not okay for us to continue in these things. That's what Paul is saying. It is never, not ever, ever okay that we together as a church or as individuals continue in any of these things. And he just lets it sit. He doesn't go on and explain himself. And in fact, you know, I need your help. You're going to have to have mercy on the preacher here because if I were to try to soften this up for your sensibilities right now, right here, I'm going to bump immediately into verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. So what I have to do is I have to be the messenger. I have to tell you that no one who practices these things will end up in the kingdom of God. And I'm not saying there's no atonement. I'm not saying that there's no forgiveness. I'm not saying that there's no repentance. I'm not saying any of those things, but it might be good for us to actually feel the sting of this warning. If not for nothing else, that maybe for the first time that we really needed it, we think I should absolutely today turn away from these things and put them away for myself for good. And I will find whatever way possible to do so because the kingdom of God is not filled up with people who practice the things that I'm practicing in secret. If for no other reason but that motivation, we should hear what Paul is saying and not dismiss him. And I cannot dismiss him 
because Paul tells me next, I don't want to be among that group that deceives you with empty words and says, you know what? God will put up with these things forever. He'll put up with them forever. He's a real nice guy. And you know what? You can just keep watching pornography. You can just keep you know, uh, sleeping with your neighbor. You can just keep talking like this. You can just keep being filthy and unclean and immoral. And you know what? That won't matter in the end as long as you come to church, take the Lord's Supper, and get baptized. I would be one of those people that would deceive you with empty words, and I just don't want to do that. Um, so as soon as we try to soften this, we, we, we meet that next verse, right? Do not become partners with them, it says. Right, in verse 7. Do not become partners with them. Don't share with them, right, is the idea. And this is weird because as parents, we try to, we're trying to get our kids to share with other kids because, like, kids aren't good at sharing. So we're like, you know what, you really need to share. We're like, no, it's my Skittles. No, it's my chips or, you know, whatever. And we're trying to tell them, no, you need to share. And this is kind of one of those weird things, right? Like the kids say, don't copy me. And God says, start copying me. And like the parents say, hey, you need to share with the other kids. And here God through Paul is saying, don't share with those kids. It's kind of weird. We think, oh, I thought God was nice. I thought we kind of want to be nice and share. And the idea here is share together with. Meaning here, you take some of my stuff, I'll take some of your stuff, right? Maybe I give you a, a church pamphlet and you give me a Playboy magazine, right? That's together sharing. That's like sharing. I share your stuff, you share my stuff. We're not to do that, ever. We're not to share their things. We're not to take in their things. We're not to, to share with the world in that way. And it doesn't mean we can't treat our neighbors with kindness or like literature, but the, the, the word here is share together with. That's the idea. And so it's kind of funny that it's like, no, don't share that way with these kids because you're part of God's family. So why does Paul call it idolatry? Isn't that, man, Paul's really, Paul, you're just too harsh. You're just too, come on, Paul, ease up, right? But no, idolatry, right? You have the spirit of God living in you. You're the temple of God. And if there are foreign gods in the temple of God, what's the Old Testament program for that? Get them out, right? You know, if you've read the Old Testament, you've read through the book of Kings, you know that one bad king comes in, what does he do to the temple? First thing, he fills it up. He fills it up with the most sexually immoral, false gods, just fills it with filthiness and, and cleanliness. All the words that we got, all impurity, gets, the temple gets filled up with them like a box. But then when a righteous king comes in, like Josiah, what does he do? He looks around, he's like, this place is in bad shape. This is in bad order. He cleans house. He takes all the idols out of the temple. He brings them down to the book Kidron. And what does he do by the book Kidron? He piles them up and he burns them to ashes and he spreads them in the, the river. That's what we need to do. Go inside your temple. If there's a bunch of poles to other gods and other things and sexual immorality and nudity everywhere that you indulge in those secret places, take it all on the urgency of a verse like this and we'll all join together as a church and we'll take that stuff out of our temples and we'll bring it down to the river and we'll burn it into ashes because that's the fight that we're fighting here. That's the call of imitating God and getting rid of these things. So in verse 8, Paul switches and he reminds us how we've changed right for at one time you were darkness but now you are light in the lord walk as children of light all this all this early creation imagery right you were darkness but god said let there be light and there was light right this thing has happened not of our own doing it's the power of the holy spirit and because of god's predestining work this is all a creative act of god and then we're told to walk again we're back to that walking walk this way as children of the light in john Chapter 12, um, beginning in verse 35, Jesus said this to his disciples, The light is among you for a little while longer. 
Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become the sons of the light. And in that picture, Jesus says, I'm the light, I'm with you. Walk while you have the light, that you may become the sons of, oh, the sons and daughters of Jesus Christ. Wow. Sons and daughters of God. Right? So discern. Right? For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. This is just a description of God, my friends. The fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. Who's, who's always good and right and true? That's God. Right? That's the God of Israel. He's always good. He's always right. He's always true. Always loves a sojourner. Always does what is just. Always kind. Slow to anger. Compassionate. Full of mercy. Right? So that's where the fruit of the light is found. And so we're back to imitating God again here. The fruit of the light, go and get this fruit, not that fruit. This fruit, the fruit you're allowed to, to pick from the throne of God. That fruit is good and right and true, right? And so all of this is the goal that will discern what's pleasing to the Lord. We need to examine these things, guys. We need to use our minds. We really do. Sometimes when we come home from church, you know what? I just suggest this, and I'll, I'll join you in this. Just sit down and think carefully. Think carefully and quietly about your life, about what the Word of God says. Ask yourself, what is pleasing to the Lord? Am I about it? Am I doing it? Am I, am I thrilled for it? Am I thirsting? Am I hungering for it? Or is it absent from my life, and are there idols in its place? We have to actually think through carefully. And even when it comes to those thorny bits of sin that we've been trying to kick for years, we have to have a game plan. We have to examine, discern what's pleasing to the Lord and work through these things carefully, actually exerting effort. And this is why, because the effort that we exert, what's underneath that? It's the effort and resources and power of the Spirit which God has supplied. That's why I tell Christians all the time, exert as much strength and effort to change as you can do physically and mentally and spiritually possible. Why? Because those glorious resources are supplied to you by Jesus Christ. So we shouldn't get in this thing, well, oh, well, was it me doing it? Or was it God doing it? So just do it. Just do it. Because you're commanded to do it. Right? And I'll join with you in that. Let's examine our lives. Let's examine the word of God and think what is in the temple of God that should have never been there in the first place. Right? Verse 11. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. So now we got good fruit, bad fruit. Right? We're back at the tree. <laughs> right? This is the good fruit. Don't take part in the bad fruit, right? It's, it's actually, it's not even fruit. It's unfruitful, right? It's, it's not even fruit at all. It's, it's, a, it's a sad imitation of real fruit, right? These works of darkness, but instead expose them, you know? And I'm, and I'm really happy about our church because we have a way of exposing what's dark, but not doing it in a way that's just a total smell in the, in the face of the community. I've seen over and over and again in our church, and I thank God for this, that when we expose the darkness, we've done so in love. And that's just so cool because we've been able to do this thing where as a church and as missionaries and as co-workers in the kingdom, I've seen it play out over and over again, even in Larry's sermons and all the other messages, right? Speaking the truth in love. That's what exposing darkness looks like. But we can never, ever, we don't want to deceive anyone with empty words and say, you know what, that's fine. You can keep on doing that. We never want to do that, right? Because these things are shameful. We, can't, we shouldn't even speak of them. There it is again. Don't even speak about these things that people do in secret because they're so shameful. It goes back to that. Don't name them. Don't name them. And it doesn't mean we can't talk about 
Obviously, Paul is saying, he's naming these things specifically. Sexual immorality, impurity, he's going down the line, naming them specifically. But what he means more about here is, is a way of life, a way of conduct, a way of speaking in the church that shouldn't even exist. And then I'm going to be honest, these next verses, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible as light is... I really don't know what Paul's getting at other than this is part of that exposing the darkness, right? When things come into the light, they're exposed. You can see them clearly for what they are. And that goes along with the idea of like, how can you examine what's pleasing to the Lord if you're just face down in the dirt with no light, no illumination, none at all? So Paul is giving us this picture of light sort of cascading over everything in the glory of Jesus Christ. And then things are becoming visible for what they actually really are. And that's what the Christian story is exposing. You're told that these things are glorious, but they're actually destructive. You're told that these things are wonderful and good, but they'll destroy you. Right? Take no part in them. Don't be co-sharers again. Don't share with these kids. Don't don't take their toys. Don't play with their toys. Right? Don't do it. Right? Um, because it'll just destroy you. So Paul comes now to this quotation. Says, therefore, it says, awake. O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And scholars don't really, you know, they argue about what this means and what it says. And the difficulty here is that it looks like he's quoting from a scripture in the Old Testament. But if you were to go to the Old Testament and try to find the scripture, you'd pull up a a zero. There's no scripture in the Old Testament that says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And the reason for that is because there's actually dozens of scriptures that say this and it looks like whatever this was some scholars say it's a baptismal hymn some say it's a resurrection hymn like an early christian hymn as part of the liturgy you know some of them say it's uh you know paul just getting way too creative but honestly whatever it is going on here number one it's wonderful let's be committed to that that what he's saying is true and wonderful but the second thing is it's a pastiche it's a mosaic actually of a number of different scriptures Uh, many of which actually come from the book of Isaiah. But there's also probably an allusion to Malachi. There's also another allusion to Daniel chapter 12, to Psalm 112. So Paul is just a person, and the early church was a community that was just so chuck full of the truth of the scripture of the Old Testament that when they just, it's just like all the scriptures just came out in one thing. And I want to actually show you what's going on here because I think it's actually beautiful. Most of the allusions, most of the strongest allusions and echoes here in this quotation that he's giving to us actually come from the book of Isaiah. And I've been able to, you just have to trust me that, I, that it, the language matches up and that he's really drawn from it here. But uh, I'm going to read to you five verses out of Isaiah, at the very least, that are tucked away in this, this little bit. Isaiah 51, 17. Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Isaiah 52.1, awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Isaiah 26.19, your dead shall live, their bodies shall arise, you who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Isaiah 9, verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. And finally, Isaiah 60, verses 1 and 2. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, 
in thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And so interestingly, this is a mosaic, and it's a mosaic of all of these scriptures that allude to this waking up to the reality of the things that are true and to new life and new birth and resurrection and the Lord shining on his people who were once in darkness but now are illuminated. But Paul does something kind of interesting here. Did you notice Isaiah 61 and 2 says, and the, the glory of the Lord, which is the divine name there, Adonai, right? Yahweh, God. But look what Paul does. And Christ, Christ will shine on you. The early church and Paul himself was so confident in the deity of our Lord Jesus that he could just easily take the divine name and put in Messiah, Christ. That's how they saw Jesus. To look at Jesus is to look at God. And so here's here's how those two connect, right? The glory of the Lord will shine on you, Isaiah 60. And then Paul says, Arise, O sleeper from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And so here's where we get right back to where we started is that in the illumination of the light of Jesus Christ that has shone on us, we can see him. Remember Paul on the road to Damascus. The great light at noonday shone from, from midday like the sun. And what was, what, what was that? It was the revelation of Jesus Christ, this blinding light. Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Follow me, arise, right? Go to the Gentiles, turn them from darkness to light turn them to a a righteousness that's brought about through faith, which is in me. And so Paul might even be talking and remembering his own experience on the road to Damascus when Christ shone on him. And in that light, he finally saw Jesus. Therefore, he saw God. Therefore, he could be an imitator of him as a beloved child. And so therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for this word. Thank you for the faithfulness of the Apostle Paul. Lord, we thank you for his both his comforts and his words of warning. Lord, let us not be inattentive listeners. Let us listen to the severity of such a warning. But let us never forget, O Lord, let us not move on to despair. Let us not move on to doom. Lord, teach us to put these things away from us for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, to imitate you, knowing, knowing that we are not trying to become beloved children, but for the very fact that you have called us such even while we are yet sinners. We pray this in Christ's name.